Today's sponsor is FreshBooks, which makes cloud accounting software that's ridiculously easy to use. FreshBooks has completely transformed how 5 million small business owners deal with paperwork. They do everything from invoices to expenses to time tracking. You can get a 30-day free trial and start saving time and money at freshbooks.com slash Peter. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. Digital Media is a real company. They bring you this podcast, many of the fun podcasts. They help sell ads and they bring it to you for free. So I can talk to people like Om Malik. Welcome, Om. Thank you, Peter. Well, we, there's so much we can talk about with you. You are the godfather of blogging. Can I call you that? A you, godfather of blogging? Sure. Why not? We can go into your deep, deep, long history in the internet and media, but let's go to the future. I want to talk about a fight you're having with John Gruber, who was another guest on this podcast. I'm having a disagreement with him about a few things. That's oh, let's sell this. This is a very, you got, you're very angry. You're having, oh, a, you guys are furious at each other furious. on the internet about Apple. You know, being furious is not my game plan, so and I don't do that, but I'm definitely in disagreement with him on a few issues. And, and the biggest issue I have, not with Gruber, but with the Apple, is the if they want to play the content game, then they should do it at Apple scale. So let's let's frame it right. This is this is stems out of some discussion you had on what another podcast, right? Yeah. The reports thing, and basically you're saying Apple was screwing around on TV and they shouldn't be, or they're not right. doing it correctly. Right. My view is if they want to make content, do television, you know, get into production game, then do it seriously. Don't do it like one-off things here and there. And the best way to do it is actually they have so much stock valuation and they have so much money that they could actually buy a player like Netflix and make a real go of it. Not only does it get them cross-platform understanding of what people want to do with content and how they want to watch it, but it also gives them a top-class engineering team which knows the modern internet infrastructure to scale the content business, not have iCloud go off for six hours, have a team which can put them on the same footing as their real competitors, which is Facebook, Google, Amazon, which are pure play internet companies doing amazing and interesting so things. So you're saying a couple of things. One, Apple's screwing around in content. They're not doing it right. Do you think they should actually buy Netflix? Yeah, I think so. You I think, think, they, you think it's actually a good idea? Yeah, and, and I actually wrote about that. It's actually a really, if they want to get into content, it's a two-way, two things that happen. They get into content in a really impactful way across platform on other devices, which are not Apple. They can't do that otherwise right now. Look at their attempts to get Apple Music to right. other platforms, and those are like, you know, they look like, oh, whatever. Why should they be in the content business in that way? Aren't they, aren't they in the business of selling iPhones? They are. My view is if they want to be in the business of right. content, then go wholeheartedly. Then go wholeheartedly into it. And then the second part of what you're saying is they get a world-class engineering team yeah. that knows how to do streaming. So what you're really saying is Apple can't do streaming in cloud No, correctly. I think Apple has issues around its internet services. So that's your position, John Gruber. That's been if, if not you, just my position that Apple has a challenge in internet services a lot of people right. including a lot of apple you know bloggers know that you wanted to say apple fanboys i know apple bloggers yeah. which is you know they are devoted to one company and there is a challenge around that for the company i think we can all like sit here and talk about it but the reality is there are internet native companies facebook google amazon versus apple 
they want to do services, they don't have the the DNA that the, those three companies have. So if you're going to do it, just kind of go for it, right? Like, don't dance around the issue. Right. The suggestion is, right, that that, that Apple was great at marrying content and her software and hardware, but now we're really moving into a software and cloud and AI only, where, where, the, where that stuff matters more than how the object works, that right. sort of have parity with the object at this right. point. And Gruber says, no, you're wrong. And the reason all of this is interesting to people in the world is because John has a big megaphone, talks about Apple, and you do too. I think John has a bigger megaphone than I do. So let's pull all the way back and explain to people who don't know you. I can't imagine they're listening to this podcast at this point if they don't know who you are. But let's say they're still listening and they don't know who you are. How did you get to get such a big megaphone? Oh, Malik. I don't think I have a big megaphone. Yeah, you do. I have a, I have opinions. And you know, just like you, we—I don't know if you—if you've already forgotten, we used to work together a long time ago. Yeah, in the very old days, yeah. When Forbes was a real thing, we, we worked at Forbes.com, which was yeah. the, the junior version of Forbes. Yeah. And I worked at Forbes.com, and I'm very proud of that. Just not the new one, which yeah. is just one hell of a shit show. Well, let's be honest. Um, we both worked at Forbes.com, and that was also a shit show as well. No, I, th- I took a lot of pride in the early days when we were... They did great stuff, but they also did top 10 nude beaches. We never did that during my phase. Maybe that was just during my phase. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, so there's no way that anyone's listening at this point still doesn't know who you are. But if you didn't, you have a long career in media. You st- you've done a bunch of different things, including Forbes, like you talked about. And you were sort of one of the early pioneers in blogging. And I want to talk to you about how you got to that point. But let's, okay. let's start there. So... At one point, you were at Forbes.com. You were typing away, writing up stories about you, you, you're like a hardware and, and networking and guy. And Super everything. boring stuff, but you liked it. Yeah. How, how did like you get it. to that point? How did you get to Forbes.com? I used to work for, I came to the U.S. almost 25 years ago and basically found my way into journalism. And I wanted to be a writer in in the U.S. That's what I wanted. What was your, who was your role model? Who was Who did you want to be? I don't think I had a role model, but I just was very inspired by an article which I read in Forbes magazine around the information superhighway and the ARPANET and stuff like that. And to me, that intuitively made sense. And when when I decided to come to the U.S., I knew exactly what I wanted to go and write about. Did you have training as a journalist before you left? No, I was a journalist before that. Never had a formal training in anything. This is in India? In India. And I just worked my way up. Like, learned from other people, learned by being on the job, doing, you know, low-level reporting jobs and, you know, doing a little bit of, like, copy boy status. Yeah, and you you get to Forbes.com? In 97. In 97. And do you have a background in tech at that point? I have had a decent enough background in tech by then. I worked at Nikkei, which was like a quick Nikkei News, was a division of Nikkei, which published in English in Japan. And I was there, first their chip reporter, then their systems reporter, and then, you know, network reporter. And then I followed and covered the launch of the Netscape IPO. And then... I just decided to go and hound the guys from Forbes to hire me. So, 
1997, writing for Forbes.com is you're really in sort of a, a tiny corner of the world. No one's really paying attention. That was attention. a very small, tiny corner of Forbes itself. Yeah, Forbes itself, and and the internet was a thing. People were sort of aware that yeah. Yahoo. I think Yahoo probably IPO, Netscape had IPO, but the idea of writing full time on the internet was a weird thing. Is that something you wanted to do? Yeah, you wanted to work Absolutely, on the internet. Yeah, I had started my own website at that time. It was called DesiParty.com, which was like a listing service for uh, South Asian nightlife events and, you know, all the, the things you do as a immigrant to, you know, hustle and make a living uh-huh. on the side. You know, journalism doesn't pay really well. So no. Well, now it's, now it's a different raining story. Raining in money, it's great. I know. I never got paid that well in my whole life. So I don't that, believe that. No, as a journalist, no. Yeah. So you're working at Forbes.com. You're covering networking and Everything, like basically networking. Like what Kara was to Yahoo, I was to Sun Microsystems. So you do, you're the Kara Swisher of Sun Microsystems. And then yeah. I remember going to a going away party for you because you were going to become a VC. Yeah. That didn't last very long. What, 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 so what made you think at, at age whatever, probably late 20s, right? I'm going to become a venture capitalist. See, this was in the middle of the bubble. What do you think? Everyone else is doing Everybody it. Everybody else is doing it, so you can be a VC. Look at these morons. I can yeah. do it, too. Exactly. But it's, it, it's, I mean, now it's kind of cliche that lots of journalists leave to become VCs. I'm doing air quotes. A lot of them actually aren't even becoming VCs, right? They're becoming marketers at VCs or something that's not an actual sort yeah. of venture partner. But it was a pretty extraordinary thing back then to think you were going to do that. There were only a handful of people who were doing that. There was only two people who had done it before, right? One was Mike Moritz and Stuart Alsop. And I was the third guy. And I was just like, I, you know, hubris, youth, whatever you want to call it. I just felt that was the next obvious step to take. And when I went and I realized that was not for me. How long did it take you to figure out this is like being a VC days. is not for me? 15, 15 days. 15 days, yeah. Like literally decided that was this was the biggest mistake. Of what my was life. the wake up call? No, I just like didn't love it. Like I was looking at the world from a very narrow standpoint, whereas working as a journalist gives you like such a massive vantage point. So it wasn't that you blew up. It wasn't that you did a bad deal. It wasn't that you didn't do any deals. I didn't do any. You should have fifteen days and left. I left in five six months. But you didn't come back to Forbes, right? You went. No, I rest. went to Red Herring. Yeah. So this this is again we're doing old timey day. But uh, this is when it was a perfectly rational thing for people like you or me or people we work with to say, I'm going to leave Forbes. I'm going to go to work at Red Herring or Business.com or Business 2.0. Uh, these things where I'm going to make a bunch of money. No, with for stock me, it options. was like I realized. So I didn't really. Forbes probably is the only. Forbes.com was the only dot com I know which made money and still couldn't go public because. The Forbes family had, <laughs> you know, just big tight control on, on everything. So whatever the reasons, Goldman and Salmon brothers were the, the family bankers, and they still couldn't make it happen. So when I realized that, and when this offer to be a VC came along, I said, maybe I'll go. You yeah. know, I'll see what happens. And then I got there. I was like, wow, this is just not what I want to do. So then you go do another. No, then I, thing. you know, stuck it out for another. Right, but you go. The, so after that, you go do so another. So I called Jason Ponton at Red Herring. I said, "Dude, I need to be out," and he says, "Okay, and come on Monday, and we'll have everything ready for you. No discussion around salary or anything. Just showed up. Just showed up. No idea around, you know, like options and all those things were not even discussed. I just wanted out, and I, I was out. That's it." 
And then I remember talking to one of my colleagues at Forbes a number of years later. They said, what do you think about blogging? I said, I don't know. It seems like a stupid thing. Why would you type up stuff and put it on the Internet just on your own? And they said, well, I was talking to Ohm, and he's doing it at, I think you were at the time of Business 2.0, and he says yeah. it's a real thing. And, and I think maybe you were thinking about doing it on your own. So how yeah. did you get to blogging? So it's a funny thing is that I used to be a blogger, but not just, it wasn't known as blogging at that time. This was in like 99, 2000 timeframe. I had a mailing list in which I would just write things I couldn't write, write about for Forbes. And it was more like my off the cuff comments. Uh -huh. It had about thousand plus subscribers and it was called Dotcom Vala. And essentially, it was like, essentially, my snarky take on the... You were on, tweeting. No, it was but, like tweeting... Pre-tweeting. It was tweeting in like 500 words. Right. right? And uh, so it was quite fun. And then I, I had my own website where I would put all my links and everything. And that newsletter was how I actually... Really, there's a lot of things I used to write. And you were doing it to scratch an itch, right? You weren't trying to make money. No, this it. was like for people who were like good sources, who were friends, and who became like, you know, like super, super friends with me. And so from that standpoint, like it was like... You're doing it to entertain yourself and your friends. It was like path in email, essentially. Yeah. Like it was like pretty entertaining email. So and then I decided in when I joined Red Herring, now, before Red Herring, every day I wrote every day. As an online journalist, newswire journalist, newspaper writer, I wrote every day. Like, my whole thing was I have to write and report and write every day. That was my thing. I go to Red Herring, I don't report and write every day. The magazines take two, three months to come out. It's a so printed that, magazine. It's a whole different way to think about it. And so I... You know, and I used to follow folks like Dave Weiner and Doc Souls, and they had their own weird blogs. And I, by that time, I had shifted my own blog. My own website was powered by a blogger, and I was using that Which to was publish. created by? F. Williams. Exactly. On and, Twitter. And, and we decided, then I decided to kind of, like in December 2001, movable type was in the market, and I installed it. Actually, Ben installed it for me. Ben was one of the co-founders of Movable Type. He installed it on a server for me, and I shifted everything to that. And then I basically blogged about what happened in my day. Like sometimes, you know, I would meet some interesting founders, and those things would never really make it to the magazine ever. It's, but I just started writing and, whatever. And, and why are you doing that? Because right? you're not getting paid by Red Herring to do it, right? trying to make money no no because i was a daily journalist and if i don't write every day i lose my mind you wanted to put stuff out because you had to yeah, get it out that is how my mind was wired it's like if i don't put something out i'm not going to think about the next thing and the next thing and that was very important so for me stories are like lego blocks if i don't put one down i can't put the next one down and i still think like that even now if there is one thing I miss about my life in the past is the ability to kind of build layers upon layers. Now, just to be honest, I had no idea that I was essentially doing blogging, right? I was just building layers for my own thinking, just like, and then over a period of time as the audience developed, 
and I had a conversation with them with comments and everything else, I suddenly started to realize this is not just me building layers. It's like my team, which is my readers, actually helping me think better about things which I should be thinking about through osmosis and conversation. It's great when it works. You get a feedback loop. Right. You write something, someone responds to it, either right. comments or they send you an email and your work gets better and they get more interesting and your audience gets bigger and it goes and goes and goes. And at what point do you decide, holy cow, this is a thing I want to do full time for a living? I, you know, the, this is a story a lot of people don't know. Two people who encouraged me to leave aggressively, one was Michael Arrington and the other was Rafat Ali. Michael Arrington, founder of TechCrunch. TechCrunch. Rafat Ali, who I, I believe, if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard Rafat because we just taped an interview yeah, with him yeah. as well, founder of Paid, paid yeah. These are two of the early blog guys yeah. getting your ear and say, oh, you should join us, do yeah. your own blog. No, they were all looking at me and just like, wait, you were doing this before us and you're still not doing it on your own. Like, that was like, it's like, what are you waiting for? And, you know, both of them were actually pretty, every single conversation, they would just hound me on that. It's like, what's wrong with you? And then Tony Schneider, who was then coming out of Yahoo, he was running uh, Yahoo's email-related stuff. And now he's a partner at True. And he also pushed me and says, dude, why are you just sitting around in Business 2.0, which is another publication? Owned by Time Inc. at the time, right? Time Inc., yes. I joined them in March 2003, not that I'm counting. I moved back to San Francisco from New York, uh, after Red Herring shut down, and it was fun to go there. I love Josh Whitner, who was a great editor. He really, really helped me figure out a lot of things, and I really got a good, I had a good time, except everybody was saying, wait, why are you just, like, we know you because of the blog and not because what you're writing. Not because you work at a Time Inc. publication. Yeah. And you, so, you created your own brand, and you could say, all right, I'm going to go move out on my own. Did you... When you decided to do it, did you have someone backing you? No. At that time, I, like the thing was actually making money, <laughs> believe it or not, because I was writing about boring stuff like networks and VoIP and stuff like that. This is when AdSense actually was really effective. And you were making money on your own running yeah, this blog. Yeah. I was like, I didn't do anything. It's like sometimes I would get like a ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 check from Google. Oh, Speaking of checks, we're going to take one second here and okay. talk to an advertiser. Hang yeah. on one second. A fine sponsor of this fine podcast. FreshBooks is the super simple cloud accounting software that's helping over 5 million small business owners conquer their paperwork in less time with way less stress. It takes about 30 seconds to create and send a polished, professional-looking invoice, and customers who accept online payments with FreshBooks get paid an average of three days faster. FreshBooks can even show you whether or not a client has looked at the invoice you've mailed. It's like having accounting superpowers. FreshBooks is offering a free month to all Recode Media listeners right now. To claim your offer, go to freshbooks.com slash Peter, enter Recode Media in the How You've Heard About Us section. You guys can figure out why you need that. That's freshbooks.com slash Peter to start your 30-day free trial. Today's show was brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company that everyone can afford. With the Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same stuff you'd find on more expensive sites, just way cheaper. Videoblocks is always adding new content, so it stays fresh. 
And as a subscriber, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. Whether you're working on personal or commercial projects, you pay zero royalties and keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off the usual price tag for my listeners only, less than 10 bucks a month. You can get your subscription today for only 99 bucks at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash recode for this exclusive offer. Today's show is also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Most mattresses are one size fits all, and if you want a customized mattress, that would cost you thousands of dollars until now. Go to helixsleep.com, answer a few simple questions. They will run a 3D biomechanical model of your body, which sounds scary, but apparently it's good. They'll use that model to engineer the most comfortable mattress you've ever slept on. Helix customers report a 30% improvement in overall sleep quality. Better for couples because they customize each side of the mattress. Your mattress shows up at your door in about a week. Shipping is 100% free, and you have 100 nights to try it out. If you don't love it, they will pick it up, bring it back, give you 100% refund, no questions asked. Sounds great. Go to helixsleep.com slash recode. You get 50 bucks off your order. That's helixsleep.com slash recode. We were just talking about how home discovered making money on the internet. It's like a, you too can do it at home with this easy kit. No, I don't no. think <laughs> you can't do it at home. So I you think were, you were made, in the early days, if you had a, what was a popular blog? How many, how many readers did you have? I think at that time I had like 200,000 monthly. 200,000 people visiting you, which is literally nothing today. Yeah. Unmonetizable. But then you were making thousands of dollars a Not month. Not like some months. Like, you know, sometimes when Vonage, remember Vonage? Uh-huh. They would want to acquire customers that like if everybody's reading about VoIP on one blog, that's the right it's way. It's an IP to phone company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but then when they went away, it was like sometimes it was fifty bucks, sometimes it was like a thousand bucks. So you weren't paying rent, but you could buy a meal. Nah, it would pay for my cigars. Let's just say that. And at the time, you liked nice cigars, and then so you say, all right, this is going to become a full time business. In uh, April two thousand and six. And and do you go out and find money, find people to buy Actually, here? yeah. So I met, Tony said, you should come and talk to True and just, you know, see if he can do something. And when I go in there, the guys from True know nothing required. They just gave me a check and just said, all right, go figure it out. That was it. So like they gave you, you, I didn't even do a full pitch. Well done. So they give you some money. You mm-hmm. go out, you create GigaOM. Yeah. You call it GigaOM because? Because, you know, it's the domain was called Giga Ohm, mm-hmm. and the Giga is the roundness in me, and Ohm is me. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Now it's like you know Giga minus Ohm. So, and the idea was from the get go that you were going to build a, a company around you, or, or was it just going to be you for a while? That was never the idea. Like that was the funny thing is that domain may have been Giga Ohm, but the, from day one, I always felt that we should build out a bigger platform for good you know, kind of blend old-school journalism ethos with blogging. So create a media company yeah. with and, other writers right. and editors. So I hired two people. One was Katie Ferenbacher, who was probably the first true believer in the company, and then Liz Gaines, who worked with you at uh, Recode and yeah. before she went off on her amazing journey. Yeah, she's doing well, it seems like. So I remember there's there's Rafa at Paid Content, there's Arrington at TechCrunch, there's you at Giga. I'm all of a sudden 
technology writing is sexy again. Blogs are sexy again. There seems to be people making money. Errington is photographed on the cover of Red Herring, burning hundred dollar bills. Business two point Excuse me. Some some defunct magazine. This thing is going. At some point, did you think, oh, I, I should flip this thing? I should sell it? I should cash out? Or do you think? Um, I remember I have getting in like a Twitter fight with you or some, some something stupid like that, where you were talking about how Time Inc is going to fail and it's going to be replaced by the likes of you and TechCrunch, et cetera. Did you really think that was going to happen, or do you think yeah. I'm going to build it to a certain size and then sell to the big? Well, I, I wanted to build a big company. Yeah, and you know that was the original plan. That's why we raised money. That's why we went on a path to hire people. But you know, like you know, first time. When you're the first person, you know, walking down a street, there's a very good chance that you're going to encounter something. And so that's what happened. Like, literally for us was that we had to figure things out a lot before. Like, now it's easy to figure things out. Like, how to drive traffic. Some stuff, do, yeah. Yeah. It's just, just like now it's part of the process. And I still believe that somebody's going to replace uh, timing. You know, look at Vox. You know, you guys seem to be doing well. Versus their fortunes are, you know, a little bit on the downside. You have, they yes, have we're Jan- going up and to the right. Right. I'm knocking on. Yeah, yeah, and they have Janice saying, well, you got to figure shit out. Did you like managing and running a company? You'd gone from being a writer, you did played VC for a minute, then you were back being a writer, you're blogging. These are solitary things. Did you like managing people and running a company? Yeah, I don't think, um, I never really thought about it that way. There was a lot of sequence of events which happened. I was running, I was running hard, and then I felt sick. So, And then when that happened, the decision was made collectively by me and my family that I can't be doing all the things. I can't be running the business. I can't be writing. I can't be, you know... Being living twenty four hours a day. You said you fell sick. This was this was in New York Times news, yeah. right? Did you have a heart attack? I did have a heart attack in two thousand seven, but remember, I'm a smoke. I was a smoker and I was super overweight and I had bad eating habits. Plus, it didn't help that I was like sleeping maybe two hours a night. So, right. I remember. I can't. I can't remember if these are separate stories or not. But there was this notion that sir, you were the poster boy for the unhealthiness of yeah, digital that, media, and you were up all night and producing, and you were slaved to the computer, and and thus, you know, blogging or typing. That's popular was a narrative. Bad idea. But everybody conveniently forgot that I was smoking and I was drinking and I was eating unhealthy foods, you know, and I was like not exercising. Those four, plus the stress of the job combined led to like a short circuit it happens so that would have happened if you were selling hot dogs or you're a bond trader or how many people like there's so many engineers who go through the same thing they have bad eating habits bad diet and like no exercise and they work all day long and kaboom you know the body is only can take so much i look back and just say maybe that was the best thing that happened to me because it forced me to take priorities on what was important so you think, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna work less. I'm gonna pull back from this yeah. company that I founded. Now, for about a year and a half, I was lost completely. Like you know, it's pretty hard to have code blue on you and then come back and just like, yeah, I need to fight for a story. Code you know, blue meaning you know you you just, didn't have a heartbeat. Yeah, so it's kind of hard. Dead. Yeah, it was like uh, I don't think breaking news is that important. I think it puts everything in perspective and and it put everything in perspective for me and. 
I think there is a sequence of events which happened, and here we are. So well, we're going to keep talking about the sequence. That's, that's what we do. So you, you pull out of, of day-to-day running Kigom, yeah. and, and then you become a half-time VC, a, a full-time I became VC? A, yeah, half-time. It was like a venture partner role, which is one or two days a week. I would go to the true office, and then I would write mostly, and I gave up managing, gave up the editorship, just did the events and help nurture and you know mentor people more than anything else. So once you got back on your feet, you think, I'm going to go back to the company I started, I'm going to run it again and manage no. it, or I'm going to be move into VC full-time, or do you think no, I'll do I a just, little bit of both? No, I just became, my job became more of a training and nurturing younger talent and helping them succeed. I didn't go back to managing. And then so over the years, Gigom like, raises more money, yeah, that gets was, bigger. That was... We had a team, people were raising money, people were growing it. All I was doing was, you know, keeping the vision alive, keeping people focused on, like... You were we the, had, this is what Shane Smith called being a brand artist. You were the face of the company, yeah. and you would appear at events, and you sort of represented what yeah, gig should be. and also, like, I, I also took a lot of pride in finding newer talent in the team, like, you know, bringing new people. Like, I read a lot of college newspapers and figured out who are going to be good reporters in the future and all that kind of stuff. You're plucking people out and calling them to the big leagues. Like, you know, trying to see is like, who's going to be, I wanted to be a scout for talent. Like, that's the part I really loved about Gigaum was finding Stacy before she was Stacy and finding Liz before she was Liz. And, and I think there is so much gratification which comes from that. Like, I had great editors who helped me like the guy who hired me at Forbes, David Cherbuck, if he hadn't hired me, you know, I wouldn't have gotten to Red Herring. Similarly, if Ponton hadn't hired me, I wouldn't have gone to Business 2.0. So all these people who take a special interest in somebody who they think is talented are helping, you know, the next generation come along. And I felt like right after I came back from the hospital that that was my role was to find people who could easily replace me just like that. So the business is growing, it's raising more money, and I remember I was in the Recode or All Things D office in San Francisco and there was something on Twitter that said Gigom is shutting down basically overnight. Yeah. Um, and I or Kara called you and you said, I can't talk, it's too emotional. Well, um, at the time it seemed like this had happened out of the blue, that the company just stopped existing. And I've tried reporting about what happened a little bit, other folks have as well. Can you explain why the company had to shut down basically overnight? I think there was, we overexpanded into research and there was that challenge. It so was, you overexpanded, you overshot. Yeah, I, I can't talk about for obvious legal reasons, but I just say it was uh, too much expansion in research. So this is your company, you founded it, you owned a I bunch left, of it. I left in January 2014 to be a full partner at True. So did so, you have any responsibility over the company? At nah. the, so so you walked away and then X number of months later then it, it had to fold. So in retrospect you think, oh, I could have stepped in earlier, I could have managed nah. this differently. No retrospect. Like I made decisions, I stand by those decisions. Some of them worked out, some of them didn't. At the time people were trying to say, oh, this means something about the internet, this means something it about means digital media. It means nothing about the internet. I think the biggest problem I have with the media is that everybody is focused on the headline and not even accurately on the headline. So I look at what's happening 
to walks right now or BuzzFeed or Vice. And I was like, I don't know. They seem to be growing really, 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 really fast. I just think we came five years too soon. Yeah. So partly you're saying it's about timing, right? That you yeah. Were the, yeah. You and were part early. of it is also you make decisions. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. That is being in a company and strategically, you know, we made some plays and those didn't work out. Now that you're a full-time venture capitalist and you're making bets on companies, yeah. is there stuff that you pull out of your experience uh, growing that company? Yeah, uh, all that the you, time. That you can bring to bear? Yeah. I was just talking to a founder of one of our companies where I'm on the board of, and I was telling him on the mistakes I made, you know, in decisions, in how I mentored people, how I interacted with people. You make mistakes because no one gives you a playbook. And you haven't done it before. Yeah. I mean, like the biggest mistake I made was I would just go out and try and fix everything. Yourself. In, in, uh, yeah, because, you know, you think you're God. And I think that is the biggest problem as a founder is that you have this, you know, desire to just take care of everything. And I think that is the number one mistake I made. Like, I, I just think instead of empowering people for the next generation and letting them succeed and fail, that was a big mistake. However, when I came out of my sickness and I had to sit down and say, wait, what is my role going forward? Because I can't work like, you know, a 25-year-old reporter who can stay up 20 hours a day. So I will have to make changes to my life. What do I do? And at that time, it was a, a lot of, you know, self-reflection. Almost like I was lost for a year, man year, year and a half, and it made me realize there is a lot of things I can do. And, and you know, I tell the founders all the mistakes. I tell them about all the mistakes I made, not all the things I did right. Do they listen? Some of them do, some of them don't, but my job is to tell them because I think mistakes teach us more than successes. Silicon Valley's biggest problem is that we celebrate success, but we never learn from mistakes. You missed my panel I did at the Code Conference this yeah. spring, a whole thing on failure. We had Dalton yeah. Caldwell, who's failed a bunch of times, and he's now a YC, Y Combinator partner. And I was really happy that I did that panel because we don't ever talk about that. We never talk about what it's like to fail. And not just, I fail, but then I succeeded, right? That, that We have that sort of false narrative, like yeah. the hero has a little bit of a problem that works out in the end. Sometimes it doesn't work out in the end. Sometimes you fail. I think failure is when you don't learn from your failure. I think that's failure, in my opinion, 100%. And uh, I, I look back and I just say, wow, I've made so many bad decisions. Do you feel like that failure, does it give you more credibility when you're making pronouncements about what Apple should be doing or anyone else should be doing in media? Well, man, I've always been doing that all my life. You've been life. doing it regardless. Right. Like, I don't care. I mean, like, you know, it's like... I, that's how I feel. It doesn't mean I'm right 100%. I'm more wrong than I'm right, right? I was so wrong about Hulu, though. But then you're eventually right. Eventually but it, it's right. fun to speak with certainty, right? right. It's more because interesting, like in it's more like, like I always put it out there. In hindsight, we are either geniuses or we are idiots. I've been an idiot more often than I've been a genius. So I'll go with that. So you're, a, you're an idiot genius now. You're investing. You're putting other people's money to work. I was just talking to somebody who said, you know, I think things are going to heat up again this fall. And I said, oh, I thought everything was like retracting and people were selling companies because they had no choice. I said, yeah, it's great. It's, it's opening up the M&A market, so we're going to start putting more money to work. What's your state? What's your, what's your sense of sort of where the tech market is right now, the startup market is right now? So it's pretty difficult to predict on 
on like what the startup market is. Like True has been investing throughout the year. We have not changed our pace. We have not gone faster. We have not gone slower. The quality of our founders is pretty much the same what we look for. Sometimes, you know, uh, investments have higher valuations. Sometimes they have slightly lower valuations. But nothing really has changed. There is a variation in expectations at the very early stage where founders expect too much you know, valuation. Right, and that's come back down a bit, right? No, it sh- I, I think from a, it hasn't. No. Like it feels like it has, but it hasn't. It is still like, you know, people expect to do like, you know, seed rounds at like 8 million pre. And like, that's just a little bit insane. And maybe this is too far in the weeds, but I mean, you know, Kara Swisher and my colleague Lauren Good are interviewing a guy from Juicero, which raised $100 million for mm-hmm. an internet-connected juicer. Maybe it's not even internet-connected. I can't remember. It's a, it's a juicer. Uh, there's an internet-connected toaster that's raised a bunch of money. Um, we can pick at any time a bunch of things that seem pretty dumb and are well-funded. Are any of those signals to you that, all right, the market is still too frothy, or is there, is there always dumb stuff like that? Well, think about a macro trend, right? The macro trend is we are putting a digital heartbeat in everything that is inanimate. Your TVs didn't have, you know, connected device. Like, there was no connection there. Your phone was just a phone and never any. So everything which, like, I'm just talking about electronics right now. But the kitchen needs to be reinvented. Oh, so you're pro-internet toaster. I am pro did you invest you, in the internet toaster? Did I just make no, a big gaffe? No, no, I'm okay. not. Like you know, I what I believe firmly believe that all the things which are around us will have some kind of silicon and some kind of connectivity, and that will have a much more profound effect on the world we live in. So, does that mean a connected oven, connected you know, car, connected toaster, connected coffee machine? They're just going to be a coffee machine in the future. We'll have to have a connection because we will need for it to work. Why do I need my coffee maker? To be we don't know yet, right? Like know. this is the exploration part of it. Like that's what technology is about. 95% of the time it's, it's exploring new opportunities and 5% is solving existing problems, right? So there's like we are exploring new frontiers, right? Is it the best idea? I don't know. Their investors think it, it seems to be a great idea, right? And so I can't argue with that. But what I can argue with is argue, not argue. I can make a statement around the fact that we will have connectivity in pretty much everything around us. And that is a bigger macro trend. And so devices and you know vehicles and all those things are going to be all networks. So you're not going to join me in making fun of the internet toaster. Dude, um, go for it. Like, come on. That's why we, that's your role on Twitter now. Is to make fun of internet toasters? Crazy thing. And, and your job is to fund it, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So you're not a young man anymore. You're in mm-hmm. good shape. You're, hey. you, look, you look well. But you're not, you're not a 20-something who can stay up 20 hours. When you're looking at stuff that's the next Snapchat or whatever it is, and it's a 23-year-old telling you this is the next thing, and all the 17-year-olds are using it, do you feel like you're equipped to assess that, or do you need to find a 21-year-old to explain to you what's going on? I'm still, you know, for me, every day on the internet is just fun, and I look at every crazy thing that comes my way. My core competency is still in the world which I understand, which is infrastructure, data, you know, 
networks, network optimization, a lot of the things which we need in order for this world of digital heartbeats to connect. And so I, I look at a lot of those companies. Those are areas of maximum interest for me. I love new idea. I love new media. And Snapchat is, in my opinion, the next MTV. And like I wrote about that like five years, four years ago when they came out. Because people were spending their time in the screen. So you got it five years ago when everyone well, was I saying. I didn't understand like why I would want... Like I don't have that many friends who were on Snapchat. So I didn't really understand. It was like four years ago is when I first saw that. It's like, yeah, this makes sense. This is where people are going to... Because I'm a firm believer. So I was an early, not an early, I was an investor in Daily Booth, which was Snapchat before Snapchat. People. What was it called? Daily Booth. No, I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Daily Booth was like a service which allowed you to use your webcam and post your pictures onto their website and share with your friends. I mean, it was Snapchat, uh-huh. except on on the desktop, never got to the... To right. the Sean Parker had one of those too, right? I don't know. Remember the one? It was, it was going to be video chat. And yeah, he did have one too. Yeah. But like, you know, all these things, the ideas are out there that finally something comes along and it becomes part of your, like, oh, it makes sense. This is how, if the phones have front-facing camera, guess what? This is the perfect application. So even, if you're, so even if you're not Snapchatting, you can assess, oh, that's Snapchat, that's going to be a thing. And you feel like when the next Snapchat comes around, you'll be able to identify it early in its cycle. So I have a different approach on this. So you, you worked at Forbes, right? Remember what Jim Michaels used to say? that This story sucks. Go back and know, do it again. No, that's he would make you say, like, what if this happens? What happens then? Right? And then what happens? And then what happens? And so it's sort of like oil prices go up. What do you do? You know, what happens? Oh, well, car sales go down. That Any idiot can say that. And then next thing is like, oh, you know, the tire sales are going to go down because you're not driving as much because the oil is more expensive. But the Forbes way would be two years, two months down the line, I think McDonald's is going to miss their numbers because there's not as many cars on the freeway because oil price. It's like. That's the Forbes way. That's top-down looking into, into the weeds and finding what is the real story. Now, from my pure tech writing background, was I started out covering silicon, right? So silicon and going up to the systems, to the network, to the services, which taught me that a new piece of silicon could have an impact 18 to 24 months down the line on the services, those two, when you combine, it is fairly easy to make sense of a lot of technology breakthroughs, right? So, for instance, when the phones had the front-facing camera, my whole thing was, what does the front-facing camera mean? Like, not what it can do. I wasn't interested in taking my selfie. I don't want anybody to be Beautiful looking at my yours. picture. But I was always interested in, like, what does this mean? And, like, the Daily Booth experience meant that, like, Kids are going to do it. Like, we were growing up in a world of people being more narcissistic. You know, every tool we have today is about narcissism. And so that was the whole thing was, like, that's why I got Snapchat. It took me a long time to figure out who to use it with because there was, all my friends were not on it. Who do you Snapchat with? I Snapchat with a bunch of friends. Yeah, a bunch of other 45 something. No, they're like in their 30s. Yeah, young So, people. but like my view is, I am ready for next 
technology change, behavior change, because my mind thinks about changes of behavior. How do they happen? You know, I may not be able to tell you that the Snapchat is going to be the next billion dollar company, but I can understand when the camera came right on the phone, I was like, when are we going to start the flicker for the phone? So, right. It was not Instagram I was looking for. I was looking for flicker for the phone, right? Like the, my, it just is an Instagram came and boom, just like that. And they nailed it. So you're sharing some of these insights uh, in places like the New Yorker.com. You'll, you'll write for occasionally, um, you tweet, um, and then you're still blogging, right? I do blog. Very rarely, though. No, really? Don't you like like, tell people what shoes to buy? Yeah, I like doing that. That's because, you know. So where do I I get your shoe tips and other? Ohm.co. And I have a little newsletter. And a newsletter. It says, you know, Ohm says. I mean, vanity is clearly not my problem. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, no, I like writing for The New Yorker. It's teaching me a lot. It's fun, right? Yeah, those guys are a whole different level. Yeah, they're good editors. Yeah. So that's all free. I can get it um, wherever I want, just like this podcast, which you can get on iTunes, Google Play. You're smart, so you can figure out where to get a podcast like this. It's all free. It's all brought to you by us at Recode and our friends at Digital Media. If you like that sort of stuff, you can listen to Kara Swisher at Recode Decode, and Lauren and Kara at Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thanks to Digital Media for distributing the show. Thanks for, oh, for coming on. Thank you, Peter. Uh, we'll be back next week with another great guest. See you then. <laughs>